because we see imperfectly in mortality. Not everything is going to make sense right now. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Welcome back, everyone. This is the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. Thanks for listening. Today, we have John Hilton joining us. Thanks so much for being on, John. You bet. Thanks. I'm glad to be here, Ryan. So, John, could you give us a little bit of a background in terms of like what you do for a living, and as well as your journey with the gospel in terms of how you're able to form your testimony and what led you to wanting to do what you currently do? Sure. Um, maybe I'll start with that second part. Um, growing up, I had a few different formational, um, maybe we could say parts of my testimony. Going to EFY as a teenager was really powerful for me. That was the first time I ever publicly bore my testimony, at least voluntarily. You know, sometimes you kind of do that as a little kid when you're, you get, get the elbow. But uh, first time when I kind of really meant it and felt it. And after that, I think another kind of big key for me was during my freshman year of college, I had some friends who challenged me to seriously study the Book of Mormon. They shared with me a quote from President Benson, where he basically says, you'll feel a spiritual power flow into your life when you seriously study the Book of Mormon. And I'd, you know, kind of read the Book of Mormon here and there uh, a little bit every day, but not seriously studying it. And so I took up that invitation and it changed my life where I, I really did feel that spiritual power. And so for me, I think the Book of Mormon is the keystone of my testimony where, you know, if the Book of Mormon is true, Joe Smith was a prophet. Joe Smith was a prophet. The church he started was true because why would a true prophet start a false church? That doesn't make sense. And if the church he started is true, then it's led by a living prophet today. So for me, that uh, there's a bedrock principle in knowing the Book of Mormon is the word of God. And I'm actually uh, really blessed to be able to teach the Book of Mormon for my profession. I've uh, been a religious educator for 20 years. I taught seminary and institute, and now I teach religion classes at Brigham Young University. That's awesome. Um, and I guess what kind of, so what got you from being passionate about the Book of Mormon to kind of thinking, I want to teach this for a living? What kind of a transition happened there? So I was um, on my mission. I started my mission in Colorado and I had, uh, when I was growing up, I never heard of teaching seminary as a career. I went to early morning seminary. Uh, we had volunteer seminary teachers, but my mission president had been a full-time seminary teacher. So I became aware of that as a career possibility. And I loved teaching as a missionary, especially teaching younger people. And so I, I found it a lot of joy in that. And as soon as I got back from my mission, I thought this is something that I want to pursue. That's awesome. I love that. I love, I love kind of just like when you're able to kind of watch that light bulb turn on spiritually with people, it's definitely a, a very special experience and it's awesome that you have the opportunity to be part of that. Um, so one of the first things I wanted to address is we have a lot of people that um, are struggling with the church for reasons of maybe they they have like they have depression, maybe they have anxiety, or maybe it's just a lot of shame. And I think sometimes they can kind of 
people can kind of look at the church kind of in like an unhealthy way per se. I think that can kind of work its way into things. But what are some ways that you think we can like look at the gospel in a healthy way? And like, I don't know if maybe that's we need to understand grace more, but I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on that. Well, that's a great question. And Ryan, I think that you read my book, The Founder of Our Peace. One of the chapters in that book talks about the concept of fence laws. And I think this this might be one area that could be really helpful for some people. So um, I want to kind of distinguish between core laws and fence laws. So a core law is, we might say, is something that is vital to have your temple recommend. So whether I live the law of tithing or keep the word of wisdom or sustain President Nelson as a prophet, seer, and revelator. Those are core laws. Now, then then there becomes what we might call fence laws. Fence laws are sort of more on the periphery, and they're often built to prevent us from breaking a core law. Maybe we could use an analogy, like imagine there's a pit in your backyard, and you don't want people to fall into the pit, so you build a fence around it. Well, we don't want people to sin or break the core law, so we build a fence around the core law to protect people from falling into the trap of sin. And sometimes fence laws can be really valuable, especially when they come from prophets or from the Holy Ghost to us personally. I think that a lot of the problems that you're describing in terms of anxiety or, you know, feeling overwhelmed has to do when something that is a fence law that maybe works really well for one person becomes an expectation and then everyone is supposed to live it. And now I start to feel, you know, more and more pressure in my life. Like I can't do everything. Like one, one person I talked with said something like, you know, if I'm, if I try to do everything I've been asked to do, I'm going to break. And what she was feeling was that there were all these good ideas coming her way and she couldn't do it all. So I think that's that's one thing that is really helpful. And in fact, in our most recent general conference, I think Elder Bednar really drove this point home in his discussion about principles. You know, if we'll focus on principles rather than a list of applications, and I think one of the specific examples he used was President Nelson, when he talked about the Sabbath, didn't say, here's a list of 400 things you can do or not do on the Sabbath day. He just said... How you treat the Sabbath is a sign of how you treat God. And with that principle, then, that gives us the opportunity for us to make some decisions on our own. I love that. I think that's really powerful. I think of like sometimes maybe like someone's maybe they're sitting in a sacrament meeting and they're they're already trying so hard. And then the bishop's like, okay, you need to read the Book of Mormon in the next two months or whatever. And you just think of like how overwhelming that could be. And that could be really good for a lot of people to a degree that could be inspired, but there might be some people where like it might be a better, they might be able to apply things better, but it's kind of those same, those same principles that we bless us all. We just got to apply it differently. I have a a stake president that I, I really admire. And I noticed that when he's given recently, he's given some invitations. He's tried to give like a menu. He said, you know, Maybe he's taught a specific principle, like the importance of family history work. And then he said, you know, here's three things that you could consider if, you know, and I think that kind of now for me as the learner gives me more opportunity to select what's going to work well for me rather than telling me I have to do a specific application. It's more of an opportunity to 
apply the principle that has been taught. I love that. Um, what are some, what are maybe some other examples from your book or things that you think could be helpful if people better understood? One of the things that I think can be really helpful is to focus on Jesus Christ. There's lots of things that are going on in the world and there's lots of problems and challenges and all sorts of details we could focus our minds on. But I found that if we can focus on Jesus Christ, we will find more joy in our lives. And, and I want to make it really clear. I'm not suggesting that if you have clinical depression, that you should just think more about Jesus and all your problems will go away. Right. I mean, just like if you broke a leg, you would seek a priesthood blessing, but you'd also seek competent medical help. And, and certainly when it comes to mental challenges, it's not just, okay, I'm going to pray and my challenges will go away. We also have the opportunity to get professional help. What I'm talking about is just in our day-to-day lives, um, so much can happen differently when we change the focus of our lives. And when we focus a little bit more on Jesus Christ, there's just a, a sense of peace that we feel. Maybe one example that, that I like to think about has to do with Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we often think about how Christ was, of course, he was going to complete the atonement. This had been prophesied for years. But just like everyone else, Jesus Christ has agency. He didn't have to complete the atonement that night. In fact, um, I love to go to the Garden of Gethsemane I sometimes go there on tours and things. And right near the Garden of Gethsemane, there's an ancient road. And the road was there at the time of Christ. And that road leads right out of town. So, in fact, on the night Jesus went into Gethsemane, he had a choice. He didn't have to suffer for our sins and complete his atoning sacrifice on the cross. He could have walked on that road right out of town. And so I love to think about that road because it's a reminder that Jesus did not give up on us then, and he is not giving up on us now. For me, that's really powerful to just know that he's there for you. He's going to help you out. And that doesn't mean that all of our problems are going to be instantly solved, but it can give us strength to know that we have a savior who's with us all the way. I love that. I think that's really powerful. And I think that's kind of where we fall a lot of the time is that we can, we can be so like fixated on a to-do list or so fixated on everything that we're doing wrong. But we really, I, I think we need to spend the majority of our time thinking about Christ. And then we do these things to form a relationship with Christ. I love the, in the new Testament, when Christ invites Peter to come walk on water with him and, um, I love that when Peter's looking at Christ, he can walk on water. He can do something that is impossible. But as soon as he looks away from Christ, that's when he falls. And he, but even when he falls, he reaches up his hand and the Savior's there to save him. And I think in our lives, like, living the gospel at times, it might seem impossible. But when we look to Christ, I just think naturally we're going to do the right thing. And we're, we're mortal. We're, we're going to make mistakes when we do that. We just got to reach our hand up and he's going to be there to catch us. Yeah. One other scripture story that comes to mind. I love uh, what you just kind of shared there with Jesus and Peter on the water in Luke chapter 24. uh, There's a couple of disciples and they're walking 
and they're really discouraged and depressed because Jesus has been crucified. And so a stranger comes up to them and says, hey, why do you guys look so sad? And the stranger really is Jesus. He's just in disguise. They, they don't recognize him. So they explain why they're feeling depressed. And, and they basically say, we've lost hope. We had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah, but I guess we were wrong. And I think it's interesting that in the very moment that they were losing hope, Jesus was actually walking with them. They just didn't recognize it. And so maybe it's the same for us sometimes. We're losing hope. We feel discouraged. But maybe even in those moments, Jesus is walking with us and we just don't recognize it. I like that. I think that's really enlightening. Um, one of the next things I wanted to discuss is something that um, really intrigued me is back in 2019, I was an EFY counselor and Brother Hilton over here is actually our session director. And on like the Sunday before EFY started, he gave us this um, kind of like a, a fireside type thing for the EFY counselors. And um, Brother Hilton started off by asking us essentially what's more important for the redemption of sins, um, the crucifixion of Christ or his suffering in Gethsemane. And it was really interesting because I think the majority of us on um, thought that that Gethsemane was more important. Um, And I don't know that we know what's more important or if there is a a more important part, but it was interesting that you showed us that all scripture gives high priority to the cross when it comes to redemption. Can you talk a little bit about that as well as your, your recent book considering the cross? Yeah. um, And that, that was a really fun fireside. So it makes me happy that you remember it because I, I also remember it. And it, it's really interesting. So I've, I've actually surveyed thousands of people and basically the results seem to be when you ask Latter-day Saints, where did Jesus mostly atone for our sins? It was a process we know, but where did he mostly atone for our sins? They'll focus a lot more on Gethsemane than on Calvary. But like you said, uh, the scriptures overwhelmingly emphasize the importance of Calvary. So there are two passages of scripture that talk about Jesus Christ suffering for our sins in Gethsemane. And there's more than 50 passages of scripture that talk about Jesus dying for our sins. And if you look at Joseph Smith, it's a similar story. In fact, if you look at the quotes from all church leaders, from Joseph Smith to the present day, they much more frequently talk about the atoning death of Jesus Christ than his atoning sacrifice in Gethsemane. And like you said, that, that's definitely not to point out, you know, like to say, well, yeah, Calvary's now that's more, more important than Gethsemane. They, they work together. But I do think what's helpful is to see that maybe the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is an area of the Savior's atonement that at least many of us haven't really focused on or paid as much attention to as we could. So going back to what we were talking about before, where the more we focus on Jesus, the more joy we will feel in our lives. President Faust said that any increase in our understanding of his atoning sacrifice draws us closer to him. So I believe that Christ's crucifixion is sort of low-hanging fruit. It's an area that many people sort of put off to the side, but there's a lot about it in scripture and in the teachings of Joseph Smith and other prophets, so that as we study this area of the Savior's atonement, it gives us a very powerful way to connect with Jesus Christ and draw closer to him. I love that. Sometimes I feel like in Latter-day Saint culture, 
there can be kind of like a stigma against the cross and like wearing cross necklaces and stuff. Can you talk a little bit about maybe the history of that and why we might kind of have that feel about the cross at times? Yeah. I mean, so, so to, to talk about the history of the cross in the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it's helpful to go back um, a few hundred years. So right after the, the time of Christ, the cross was not used as a symbol of Christianity that became popular in the fourth century. So a few hundred years after Christ. And over time, it did become more and more common for people to display crosses, wear crosses. But when you get to about the 16th century and the Protestant Reformation, so you have the Catholics and Protestants splitting apart. At that time, the cross became much more of a Catholic thing than a Christian thing. Uh, that, that's not like, universally true across all denominations, but in general, um, people who were not Catholic tended not to use the cross. So many of the pilgrims or the Puritans who are coming over to America, they do not like the image of the cross. It's not part of their worship. And, and in fact, in the 1800s, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, they did not use the cross in their buildings. It wasn't a symbol. So when Joseph Smith is growing up, there's actually no Catholic churches in Palmyra. He's not thinking about the cross as a Christian symbol because at the time it was really more of an exclusive Catholic symbol as opposed to a general Christian symbol. So kind of to make a long story short, Latter-day Saints eventually move from Nauvoo to Salt Lake City. But over the next 20 or so years in America, hundreds of thousands of Catholics immigrate and they bring with them um, their sort of some, some of their traditions around wearing a cross and having crosses in their church buildings, and other Christians start to notice that, and they're like, "Hey, this is actually this is beneficial. This is helping us connect more with the Savior." And by the time you get to the 1870s, the cross has become not a Catholic symbol but a universal Christian symbol. But Latter Day Saints are in Utah. We're kind of isolated away from. Uh, others in America. And so we don't participate in this near universal adoption of the cross as a Christian symbol. But it is important to know that you mentioned the word stigma earlier, that there wasn't uh, the same type of stigma, it seems, in the late 1800s. There's lots of published photographs of a wife of Brigham Young or daughter of Brigham Young wearing cross necklaces, wearing cross earrings. Like th these were um, thing, uh, accessories that people chose to wear on the special day that they got a formal photograph. Um, there's, there's many other examples. I'll, I'll just share one. Um, in 1916, the president of the church, who was Joseph F. Smith, approved a proposal to put a cross on Ensign Peak. So, I mean, that's, that's a big deal to see the president of the church saying, yeah, we want to have this cross here as a memorial for our Christian beliefs. So, so I guess what I'm trying to say is there's been an ebb and flow over the decades of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints around the cross as a symbol. If you were to ask the average member today, so why don't you wear a cross or why doesn't your church have crosses? They would probably refer to President Hinckley's statement that he gave in 1975. He was giving a tour of the Mesa, Arizona temple and it was the person he was giving a tour to was a pastor. And the pastor says, hey, you guys say you're Christian, but you don't have any crosses in your temple. What's up with that? And President Hinckley said, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. He said, for us, the cross is a symbol of the dying Christ. 
and we worship the living Christ. And I think it's important for us to maybe pause there and, and think about that statement a little bit because it is 100% the living Christ we worship. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, there's no point in the crucifixion. At the same time, we know that symbols are multifaceted. They have lots of different meanings. In fact, if, if you were to say to your Presbyterian friend, why do you wear a cross? Like, why do you focus on the dead Christ? They would be so offended, right? They'd be like, what are you talking about? To me, the cross is a symbol of Christ's triumph over death. So uh, in fact, recently, one of the things I've been researching is what early Latter-day Saint women taught about the, Christ, uh, the cross as a symbol. And I've been reading the Relief Society magazine and the Young Women Journal, which were publications in the early 1900s. Um, some of the Relief Society magazine went all the way to 1970. And you'll find statements like talking about the cross as a symbol of triumph or the cross as a symbol of glory or of love. So I think there are lots of different ways we can look at the cross as a symbol. And I'm certainly not suggesting that like, hey, everyone needs to go out and buy a cross necklace but it definitely does not need to be something that's stigmatized. Kind of going back to our earlier discussion on fence laws, there are some things that are core laws and some things that are kind of fence laws and culture, tradition maybe falls into that. And so, I mean, I have tons of examples and I'm sure some of your listeners can relate to these where someone who's learning about the church shows up to church wearing a cross necklace and is rebuked and is told, hey, we don't do that here, don't do this. Why, why would we need to make a big deal about it? I, I have one of my students, so she was going to a university a, attending institute. And so at this institute, they had a special parking lot and parking stickers, you know, if you could, so you could park at the institute lot. And she's also has a little cross hanging from her rear view mirror. She came out to her car one day and someone's left a note on her car saying, what's up with this? You have a cross and an institute sticker, choose one. And it's sort of like, wow, why would you, like, why would we make a big deal about this? So I think this is one of those opportunities. Okay, two thoughts. I know I've been talking a lot. Two thoughts. Number one, this is an opportunity to not make a big deal about something. So if someone wants to wear a cross, that's great. It's a, it's a cultural choice about what the cross means to you. Not saying that everyone needs to wear it, but we should not criticize people who choose to do so. Um, because that might even be an opportunity for missionary work. Right? Maybe you're going to see someone wearing a cross and you'll be like, wow, I see that you believe in Jesus. Tell me about that. And all of a sudden you're having a conversation about Jesus Christ that's giving you the chance to share the gospel. Maybe the second thing that I would say about it is, again, tying back to our earlier discussion, if I get so focused and worked up about the fence laws that then I, I miss the mark of the core laws, that's a problem. And if I'm so fixated like, oh, the cross is bad, like we don't, we don't use the cross, I might miss the really important doctrine that Jesus Christ was crucified for the sins of the world. More than 20 times in scriptures, Jesus Christ himself personally talks about his crucifixion. And so it's obviously important to him. And I think at least for me growing up and maybe for others as well, the fact that I didn't uh, use the cross, in fact, the fact that I had a negative perception of the cross probably pushed me away from studying the act that Jesus Christ himself defined as his greatest act of love, namely his crucifixion. I love that. Thanks for talking about that. And I also just, I like that you kind of mentioned just that I think we need to make sure that we're, 
we're characterizing other people in appropriate manners where I think sometimes we might be like, yeah, we, we worship the living Christ. Can, we can kind of come across maybe arrogant at times with that, but just trying to see the good that like our Protestant friends and our Catholic friends, they're wearing it because they're trying to remember and honor their savior. Yeah. I, I'm sure that there are some people out there, but I, I have never talked with a Catholic or a Baptist or any Christian who says I worship the dead Christ. Never zero. Um, everyone I've talked to, and I believe almost every Christian worships the living Christ. Yeah. That's thanks so much for talking about that. What kind of advice would you have for anyone that's listening that is currently in a faith crisis? One thing that comes to mind is to remember the miracles that you have seen. Remember the testimony, the spiritual experiences that you felt in the past. And sometimes it's easy to forget. One of my favorite examples of this is in the Gospel of Mark, um, it records Jesus feeding 5,000 people. It's this amazing miracle. Like, how did this happen? And then you flip over a couple of chapters later, and there's 4,000 people who are gathered together, and they need food. And the disciples say to Jesus, where, where are we going to get so much food for all these people? And, and you're kind of like, well, duh, don't you remember? Like, Jesus has already done this. Like, he did a bigger miracle before. He fed the 5,000. I'm sure he can feed the 4,000. And there's lots of ways that you can look at this passage, but I think one, one lesson is it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget the spiritual feelings we have. And President Eyring said, faith has a short shelf life. So, so one suggestion idea that I would give for someone who's going through a faith crisis is take some time. Maybe you have a journal where you could go back and look at earlier experiences in your life, or maybe you could just create a few things now, but but look back, when was a time when you were a child that a prayer was answered? When was a time that you read a passage of scripture that really spoke to your heart and gave you the answer that you needed? When was a time that you can honestly say that you felt the Holy Ghost? And for me, I found that sometimes I've forgotten about these earlier spiritual witnesses that I've received. And just taking a moment to review them might give us strength when we're feeling a little doubtful, a little weak. I love that. And I think, I think doing that kind of, it provides you a shield of faith to approach things with. Sometimes I've had kind of moments where I'm kind of, I'm kind of just, maybe the right word is perplexed where me and someone will be talking, we'll be looking at the same issue and they'll have some huge problem with it. And I won't have that big of a problem with, I think they're legit good answers for it. Um, but I think the reason for that is because I'm looking at it with a shield of faith with kind of, for me, like certain responses hold more validity when I'm like, I've had these spiritual experiences or I, or I know like, okay, I don't really know the answer, but I'm confident I will have an answer eventually. So I just think like those spiritual experiences are so important and just, and just approaching issues with that is kind of like your glasses per se. I love that. That's a great analogy. Um, Okay, the, the question that I wanted to just end with now is, what does the gospel of Jesus Christ mean to you? For me, the gospel of Jesus Christ is, uh, I mean, honestly, it's, it's so much. Um, 
what I think of the most when I think of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a statement that the Savior made. Uh, he, in 35 chapter 27, he says, this is my gospel. And then he starts defining it. And the first thing he says is, I came into the world to do the will of my father because my father sent me. And then he says, my father sent me that I might be lifted up upon the cross, that I might draw all people unto me. And then he goes on and there's definitely more uh, in that definition. But I think just those first three things really highlight the gospel and what that means. It's that we are children of God and God sent us to earth. And we want to do his will. I'm not here to do my, like my own agenda. I'm not here to build the kingdom of John. I'm here to do the will of God. And sometimes the things that he's going to ask us to do are hard. But we have an example in doing hard things in Jesus Christ. His father sent him to be lifted up upon the cross. And Jesus did it. I'm not going to be asked to be lifted up on a cross, but maybe God's going to ask me to do some hard things. And I can follow the example of Jesus Christ, especially because of that next point. Jesus says that I might be lifted up upon the cross, that I might draw all people to me. So Christ on the cross is exerting, exerting a spiritual force, drawing us closer to him. And I think that's a powerful aspect of the gospel is that we're not alone. We have a savior who's there to help and strengthen us with whatever difficulties we have. I love that. I had a point on my mission where I just kind of discovered that the more we study and the more we understand the atonement, the more we're going to just naturally do the right thing. Cause I just think like when you, even to the slightest degree, understand what Christ did for you, I think our heart just fills with gratitude just this this being our our elder brother our god our savior like went through this for us and i just think when we understand that it just it make it leads us to do the right thing definitely well thanks so much for being on john i i i know that you've had a lot of great things that you've said that i think would really help our viewers Thanks. It's great to be here and I'm glad to be a part of the podcast. Thanks, Ryan. This has been the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. We'll see you next time.